Hello and welcome to Bread and Thread, a podcast about food and domestic history. I'm Liz. And I'm Hazel. We are two friends who studied archaeology together and love history and trying out things from history and just making things. And we normally start by talking about what we've been making. So what have you been up to? Um, I don't remember if I've mentioned it on the on a previous episode, but I did make sunlight soap. I can't remember, but that is cool. Um, without the colonialist palm oil, I just used the the pine nut oil. But okay. like having it side by side with lard soap, you you can see why people flocked to it. It uh-huh. smells nicer and it feels nicer. I imagine lard soap like doesn't smell that nice. Like it doesn't smell bad but it doesn't smell good like there's (laughs) you know aftertastes there's like an after smell an after smell (laughs) okay yeah i can see why you would want a sunlight soap because i don't want to be walking around with an after smell (laughs) (laughs) all on your clothes as well (laughs) oh no well, because we said, didn't we, that it would be laundry soap as much as for washing your body. Oh, yeah, that's true. You'd just be covered in aftersmell. Just a bacony aftersmell. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. So that's that's the main thing I've done. I've been experimenting with punch needle, but I've I've only done a kit so far. It's fun though. It's 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 nice to stab things in a less precise way than with embroidery. That sounds really cool. Does it? What kind of texture does it have? Um, like a really tight pom pom. Okay. Which I guess makes sense because it's just it's little loops of wool. Yeah. Is it like it's often used for rugs, isn't it? Yeah. The the kit I had was for just a picture of a bee that you can hang up, mm-hmm. which I I'm, I'm gonna keep that. I like bees. Awesome. But bees I am good. gonna try making a rug. Oh. Not a hundred percent settled on a design yet, but I will I will keep you updated. <laughs> Excellent. What have you been up to? How did your your grandmother portrait go? So I finished it, uh, just in time. <laughs> I pulled a couple of late nights um just before but i made it i made it to the birthday um mm-hmm. well it wasn't her actual birthday but it was the birthday weekend um yeah so i got it done um i'll yeah i'll hopefully remember to put a picture of it um i didn't really get great pictures because as at the time i was giving it to her i was also being dragged off by a 3 year old to like go and play so <laughs> i didn't really get time year olds yeah um <laughs> this is uh, my cousin's kid she's such a great 3 year old like she's so bossy <laughs> when you play with her she's just like come here sit down no not there um, we, she told me to, to lay on the floor and then she was just like, stay there for three hours. <laughs> she hasn't really grasped the concept of time yet. So did you? No, no. I pretended to look at my watch, which I wasn't wearing. And then I said, it's been three hours. And she was like, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> I finished the embroidery piece. Um, it was really difficult for me actually, because I'm not used to so much like I like to work from a pattern usually I and this time I had to make it from a photo um and the realistic embroidery technique was was quite new to me um and choosing all the colors and everything is actually quite hard um like the color you think you need isn't always the one you need Uh, like she's wearing a white um nurse's uniform and I thought I needed a bright white, but it turns out that no, it looks more realistic if you use like off white or cream or like almost beige. It's yeah. Um that was interesting. But yeah, I'm quite proud of that. It's it's now done. And um 
I think she liked it. So that's good. Yeah. And now I can work on projects that are less stressful again, which is fun. <laughs> that is always nice. <laughs> yeah. So what is our topic for today? Well, you might have noticed it's been very hot lately. Yeah. Yeah, it it has been somewhat warm. And the thing that makes that happen is called the sun. You so, learn a lot of things here on Bread and Thread. So I, I thought I would look at sun protection. Oh, that's a good one. Th thank you. <laughs> Just complimenting you on your choice of uh, episode topic. <laughs> um, yeah, so I hadn't actually thought about that, but now that you mention it, I guess... The sun has been hot for pretty much all of history, so we must have been doing something to protect ourselves. Um, so I have kind of a roundup of sun protection in various places, and then I'm going to get into sun cream. Okay. Um, so... You can probably guess that the most common form of, forms of sun protection in the past were big hats and smearing stuff on yourself. I think I like the first one more. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's it's I don't know I don't know if you remember from like primary school the slip slap slop thing. What? Well, you you've got a. You gotta slip on some long sleeves to protect your skin from the sun. You gotta slap on a hat and you gotta slop on some sun cream. Did did you not have that? No, I don't remember that. It was like this national sun protection campaign. Okay. Man, I I'm not sure if slap I, I is think, like I think we stole it from Australia. That would make sense. But I I'm just like if you tell a child to slap on a hat, I'm not sure if you're going to get the desired result. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think as a kid, I just enjoyed saying slip, slap, slop. <laughs> I mean, I guess it works in that sense. I mean, no one ever actually did the long sleeves part because it was also hot when it was sunny. Mm. But the, the thought was there. <laughs> Um, so you have things like, um, yeah, the very stereotypical sort of conical Southeast Asian hat. Mm -hmm. um, apparently the Vietnamese name for it is uh, Non La, which I mm -hmm. probably pronounced wrong because I'm really bad at tonal languages. I, I don't control my voice tone that well sometimes. I, think um, I, I would give it a go, but I can't remember if the nun is pronounced with a falling or a rising tone. And Does it help to know that the vowels have both got accents on them in this transliteration? Yeah, no, I, I do re remember vaguely how it's pronounced, but I, I think it's like nun la, but I might, have, I might have mixed up the tones. So please tell me if that was terrible, <laughs> because I was always quite bad with my pronunciation. But however you pronounce it, apparently means leaf hat. Um, that is cool. I like that. It would traditionally be things like, um, like you see in a lot of like um, sort of Japanese and Chinese cartoons. I think where people just get like a lotus leaf and put it on their head. Oh, but um, obviously these are, you know, properly constructed garments. But that's kind of the vibe, I guess. Um, but because they're entirely plant matter, you can just like dip them in water and then put them back on to help keep you cool. Ooh. Which sounds really refreshing. Yeah, right that sounds really nice. Um, obviously, similar to that, you've also got parasols, which um, Assyria apparently had parasols made of palm fronds. Okay. And again, in places like Southeast Asia, you have a lot of um, parasols made from things like uh, bamboo paper and silk. Oh, like that sounds so fancy. They took off here. I guess, like, 
we don't necessarily have as enough sun to merit inventing something like that. No, I think they they were mostly a thing during the if you're posh, you keep yourself pale to show that you don't have to go work outside kind of eras. Mm. Which I will get to. Um, but in, in terms of protective garments, there's also um, people like um, sort of First Nations people in the very north of Canada and Alaska, as well as um, sort of Siberia, Greenland, the whole sort of North Pole area. Um, there's actually snow goggles. Okay. As a part of um, traditional wear to protect your eyes from, from the sun. Because obviously snow blindness is a, a real risk up there. Yeah. Um, which are basically sort of a glasses shape made of ivory, wood, whatever material you can get hold of, basically, with just thin slits to look through. Mm-hmm. To help reduce snow blindness. Which I think is really cool because it it's not necessarily a sun protection thought, but also it is going to protect you from yeah sunglasses protects you from yeah like that's really clever um i am going to do a separate thing on sunglasses but there were there have been sunglasses found um sorry i've forgotten the era now i can't find when it was from now but um you know, people in the pla- in the past did have sunglasses made from things like um, smoky glass or certain stones, which had were sort of a translucent, dark look. I will find a picture to tweet. I don't remember the era offhand, um, which wouldn't necessarily protect you from the UV, mm-hmm. which is the the main issue with the sun. But it'd at least be easier to see when it was bright. Okay. That's that's at least something. Yeah. That that's why I I haven't included sunglasses properly in this because a lot of it is just about historically is just about sort of make it less bright rather than actually protecting your eyes. Okay. Which is a whole thing, because if you make it less bright you it can make you more susceptible to the UV in your eyes if you, they're not also UV oh, really yeah um so there's different categories of sunglasses which are basically how much UV protection you get and the lowest okay. category which doesn't give you any is actually really bad because your eyes go oh it's really dark we need to let more light in oh so it's like worse than not wearing sunglasses yeah cuz oh no you're letting in more light and not being protected from the UV. You're letting in more UV. Oh, no. Which is a problem. <laughs> yeah, that's an issue. Um, but in, in the sort of putting stuff on your skin category of sun protection, which I think we're more familiar with. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely a lot of sort of get what's around you and put it on your face i do really love the idea of just like grabbing a big leaf and then just just using that like it's it's so whimsical i do i do love i do love the leaf hat like the because it must have evolved from just putting a leaf on your head for the shade mustn't it yeah like it's it's just kind of a ready-made parasol like it's there and the construction of them now is so intricate. Like I've seen videos of people making them and it's so much it's so much delicate work. Oh wow. Like it must take you years to learn to do it properly. Can um, you put uh, a link to any of those videos if you can remember? I will. Uh, I'm which ones? That I'm gonna tweet the old sunglasses and I'm gonna tweet um Either a leaf hat or a bamboo parasol. Okay. Video. Because there's a specific bamboo parasol video that's really fun to watch. It's just, it's, it's really satisfying. 
but I will mm -hmm. see if I can find a, a leaf hat one as well. Um, so yeah, putting actually putting stuff on your skin. Um, one one of the sort of bigger ones that we know about is the uh, Himba people of Namibia, who still do this. They use um, a mixture of fat and red ochre to put um, okay. it on your skin and on your hair. Okay, I've seen I've seen pictures of the the hair covering. Um, but I didn't realize it was used for skin as well. Yeah, there's. It's an interesting one because there's, you know, some ethnographers say that it's oh, it's this traditional sun protection and it protects you from insects and like it does do that. But a lot of Himba now say it's more of an aesthetic thing. Mm -hmm. So it's that interesting thing of sort of which one was it originally no one okay. no one really knows but it I mean I, I think it's a good look and yeah. it does provide some protection I mean I guess why not both yeah um, actually maybe I mean sun cream manufacturers are missing a trick with tinted sun creams I mean the amount of people that complain about sun cream leaving like a white residue or especially on more pigmented skin making kind of an ashy look leaning into it with just pigmented sun cream would would be interesting yeah maybe there's a, a market there i don't know look, look into it nivea yeah, and if you do it, you have to give me the royalties because it was my idea. No one, no one else ever has had that idea ever, apart from me on this podcast. I, I yeah. definitely think that's true. So, if you yeah, money, please. Sun cream, you have to give bread and thread half of your profits. <laughs> In uh, Myanmar, um, there's a paste called uh, thanaka, which is made from tree bark, and is again is sun protection and an aesthetic thing mm -hmm. um the source I, I was reading describes it as a decorative shield against the sun that is an excellent description um ancient greece obviously using olive oil which may, maybe not the best choice no that doesn't sound like a good idea <laughs> Like I, I think we we know now that oil is more of a, a tanning encourager than a sun yeah. <laughs> so, Famously like, gets hot very easily. So it's a classic sitcom prank, isn't it? <laughs> um, ancient Egypt used uh, one that sounds quite nice: a uh, rice bran and jasmine. Ooh. That sounds like it would have a good after smell. It does. <laughs> We've created the word after smell and I don't like it. We have. In fact, I'm going to create my own aftershave and it's going to be called after smell. <laughs> and it's going to smell of rice bran and jasmine. Interestingly, rice bran actually does provide a lot of UV protection and is still used in some modern sun creams. Oh, okay. Wow. Maybe we should bring it back. Get That's me, really cool, yeah. Get some jasmine-scented, tinted sun cream. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there's, you know, you get to 16th century Venice and there's people with black velvet masks to keep your face pale. Oh, I've actually heard about these from... Um... Uh, I saw a portrait that had a woman wearing one of these in um, and there were people commenting on it like um, like what's going on here is this some kind of like representation of something and then um, somebody pointed out that th that was actually a thing like ladies would wear these black masks that makes your face just look like void <laughs> If if you can find a picture of that, that's gonna have to also go on the Twitter. I, yeah, I will do my best. It was quite a striking picture. Yeah, it's like it's genuinely creepy to look at. 
I didn't but, realize that was like a a sun protection thing as well, though. Like, it's to keep your face pale when you're when you're walking around. Okay, that makes sense. But also, like, it sounds like that would make you just look terrifying. Yeah. Um. Yeah. So, we, if we if we jump forwards to this article that I found on SciHub. Um, so people knew that skin cancer was a thing and they knew that sunburn was a thing. Mm -hmm. Um, but it becomes sort of a formal connection in, you know, in Western medicine in the, yeah, right at the end of the 19th century, is a study by a German doctor called um, Una in 1894, where he, he basically goes, hey, may maybe these are connected. I, I did some science, <laughs> and I, I think they might be connected. Well done. Did you say well done? <laughs> I did. Oh, you just made him sound just like really unsure of himself. It's like, hey, 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 guys. Um, I, I, I mean, uh, no worries if if you're not. But I just thought you might be interested in some science that I did. Um, well, I mean, it's his is is really just a first attempt. It's really, you know. I, just... I feel like he was probably more confident than that. But, <laughs> you know. Um. So yeah. He. So he referred to. Um. Sailor's skin carcinoma, where he okay. talks about um, sailors who obviously got a lot more sun exposure than most people mm -hmm. having more cases of skin cancer. And then another doctor whose name I cannot pronounce, and I can't work out where he's from because the paper's name is in Latin, so I cannot figure it out. Um, Came up with a similar theory about vineyard workers who would also be out in the sun all day. Mm -hmm. um, and we pretty much figured out that sun exposure was linked to skin cancer by sort of the start of the 1920s. Okay. Well, that Which... one took a while. Yeah. I, I guess at that point we were still at the stage of all disease is either germs or like your your brain messing up these are the two things and then these guys are like but what if it was the sun and they were right they it were was right. the sun i would like to make it clear that they were correct <laughs> we're just becoming a, a science conspiracy theory podcast from here on in what 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 is the conspiracy theory here? That the sun is blameless. <laughs> that is a hot take, but you know that there's going to be oh, who believes it. A hot take. To quote a Tumblr post, <laughs> you go knocking on enough doors asking for the devil. Eventually, he's going to answer. <laughs> you cannot mm. come up with a, a spicy take that someone doesn't genuinely believe. Sorry, I'm I'm just trying to calm down from having possibly made the greatest pun ever. So yeah, um sun sunscreen becomes commercially available in 1928. So they were pretty fast on that. Um although how useful it would have been. It probably had zinc oxide in it. Which is a useful one. Okay. Um, well, because there's basically there's two kinds of sunscreen, um, which is the word I'm going to use because it's the more sort of technical term, I guess, even though it's not the UK word for it. Mm -hmm. There's ones that reflect the UV back and there's ones that absorb it, which is why a lot of sunscreen cream has things like uh, zinc oxide and titanium dioxide in 
because they're they're bright white and reflective so they'd leave that sort of layer on your skin i see okay yeah one of the earliest sunscreens um it was created by a world war ii uh pilot called benjamin green it's a red veterinary petrolatum oh gosh that's a um, name or red vet pet for short <laughs> which was this sort of sticky slimy red like petroleum jelly like substance huh um but he eventually ended up founding copper tone which is a sunscreen manufacturer okay are they still going i believe they are still going oh wow um but the first sort of yeah most of the sources i found say that the first sunscreen was invented in australia by um h.a milton blake which was an actual uh uv filtering thing rather than just zinc oxide okay That sounds somewhat more useful. Definitely, yeah. And then in in 1974, they started introducing actual formal measurements of how effective various sunscreens were. It's when you get um, SPF. Oh, I see. So that wasn't until the 1970s? No. Wow. So you just buy sun cream and then be like, well... Is this going to protect me? Is it going to make UV worse? Let's find out. What's the worst that could happen? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, um, so SPF was actually invented in the 60s, but it wasn't sort of a formal, official, well-known thing until the 70s, basically. Okay. Um, so do you know what the, the numbers mean on SPF? Because I did not until researching this. Okay, so I know the higher the number is, the better protection it's meant to be, right? But apart from that, I know nothing. Um, So the idea is, it's basically, so if you have SPF 30, Mm -hmm. that means that one thirtieth of the radiation will get to your skin. Okay. Which basically means you can be out in the sun for thirty times as long, not accounting for the fact, obviously, that it the protection wears off over time and you have to reapply. Mm-hmm. Oh wow! Yeah, that's that's why the higher the number, the better. That's actually pretty useful to know. Yeah. So the example that I found in in one of the articles I was looking at is, yeah, if it will take you ten minutes to get sunburn in just without anything on if you wear spf 15 you can be out for 150 minutes all right but most sun creams still say to reapply every couple of hours which is fair because it it does wear off over time because you shed skin and friction and all that all that stuff mm-hmm. and especially if you're swimming right it can wear off quicker oh yeah like even waterproof ones will wear off and obviously mm. sweat is also a form of water this is just turning into a little bit of a PSA, but also <laughs> I did have to have a mole removed last week, so I'm very I've... aware of the dangers of the sun right now. <laughs> I feel like we do stray into the realm of PSA on occasion, but yeah, always in the interests of like historically related things. Oh yeah, it's like we've known about this connection for about a hundred years now. You better, you better be aware of it. <laughs> Put your sunscreen on, kids. Slip, slap, slop. Slip, slap, slop. Indeed, I need to do that more often. Actually, I <laughs> forget sunscreen. Although Indeed, I have, I have been acquainted with the benefits of a massive hat. I do enjoy a massive hat. I think massive hats need to make a comeback. I I was on site doing doing some digging last week in my massive hat and I felt very good about myself amazing 
so yeah now now we have um yes sun cream um you can list up to spf 50 in uh places like the eu and australia in the us i believe you can't actually advertise as spf 50 yet because the fda isn't convinced that all of the things that say 50 are definitely actually factor 50 okay um there's also different sun creams are more protective against uva or uvb so you do need to keep an eye out for when they when they say like do they actually say both because some of them don't um this is all i'm just like jotting this down this is really good information <laughs> to have yeah like the the uva uvb thing is a much more recent discovery that there's actually two different ones okay um there's also some ingredients in some sun cream that can cause coral reef bleaching apparently which are, are being phased out mm -hmm. um should should i say the names of them i yeah go ahead someone might be for, interested for, for our listeners uh oxybenzone and oxinox octinoxate that's hard to say um so yeah so when we're now at a point where people are trying to find different things to put in sun cream to make it as effective as possible and as coral reef safe as possible i mean that's yeah that's pretty good i'm glad we're doing that so yeah, i do i do think bringing back the historically sound method of big hats and possibly also parasols is is probably a good idea as well alongside our modern methods definitely and you know everyone looks good in a big hat is the thing but everyone is sun protected in a big hat you look good in a big hat you don't look good with sunburn that's that true take away from this <laughs> So yeah, there's my my brief history of sun protection. I I definitely missed some stuff out, but I didn't want this to turn into a whole like TED talk. Yeah, it seems like a pretty big area. I mean, there must be other. I mean, even things like cultural practices, like going for a nap in the afternoon, could be a way of dealing with with sun. So oh, yeah, and and there's also like things that are definitely just cosmetic like lead makeup to be like yes i'm definitely pale and have not been in the sun at all oh gosh yeah then there's pretending that you haven't been in the sun when in fact yeah. you may have been it's which i find i find funny the sort of switch from i've definitely not been in the sun to i definitely have like there's there's places advertising like come on our sunbeds for your pre-holiday tan because you you know you can't Gosh. go on your tropical holiday without a tan. You need one when you get there. Yeah, it's when you think about it. It's... Being able to travel to sunny places has made like flipped the status symbol thing. Mm, and it's been quite quite a fast flip, actually. Like to to the point that we're still like in some places you can go into the supermarket and they'll have tanning products next to like the skin lightening products. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> oh yeah, when you get into colorism as well, it's like a whole extra thing. Oh yeah, like, I mean between between colorism, racism, classism, there's this general idea that there's this one specific color you're supposed to be, but not if it's your natural skin tone. Mm. It's. That's I yeah, yeah I mean that's an interesting one and I suppose that's getting more into the realm of like social commentary but um... yes and also like we're both white so I don't want to <laughs> so someone else's rant to do but there's certainly I mean if anyone's interested in doing that there's an interesting like historical episode to be made on like quote unquote fashionable skin color throughout history oh yeah like. If if this is something that you know about or you know someone who knows about, like get in touch with us honestly. Hello, I'm Mod Pencil from Probably Bad RPG Ideas. If you'd like to hear discussions of ideas such as what if in my urban fantasy game magic turns out to not be real and 
what is the best rules for an open? Then listen to the Probably Bad podcast, which is available on everywhere podcasts are and also YouTube. Or check out our Tumblr and Twitter. Do you want to hear about bears? I do want to hear about bears. <laughs> so this this is a local larder. Um, that is bear related. Uh, yes, people are in fact eating bears and have been for a long time. Um, okay. Yeah. So I was a bit stumped for local ladder this week, so I decided that I would have a flick through our good friend Alexandre Dumas and his From Absence to Zest, an alphabet for food lovers. Uh, and he did not let me down. Uh, we did do an episode on that. Um, I forgot what number it was. Uh, but. We, we did indeed do an episode on Alexandre Dumas, who was famously a food lover and wrote this whole dictionary of food. Um, and yeah, and he has... Episode 10. Episode 10, oh my goodness. Was that our second like person episode? Or was that our first? It was our first person episode <gasps> because the episode five was the form of Curie. Wow! First bio. Oh, he was he was our first man, our first dude. Okay, um, we love and support Alexandre Dumas. We do, we do. I mean, he's kind of insufferable sometimes, but like, I love him. Um, so there is an entry of bear in this food dictionary, and I'm. This is going to lead on to the actual regional food. That I'm going to talk about. Um, but I, I just wanted to read out what he says under bear um, because it's amazing. So there are few people of our generation who do not recall the sensation caused by the first installment of my Impressions de Voyage when people read the article entitled Bear Steak. Um, so, you know, being, oh, yeah. being totally modest about his book here. Um, there was a universal outcry against the audacious narrator who dared to say that there were places in civilised Europe where bear is eaten. Yeah. I could at that time have given to readers the advice which I give them today, but I took good care not to. There was a big commotion about the book, and since at that time I was just embarking on a literary career, I could ask for nothing better. He does. Our boy knows how it's done. You've got to play the game. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-huh. But to my great astonishment, the person who should have should have been most pleased by the uproar, the innkeeper de Martigny. Uh, I think this is the innkeeper that he that he wrote like he he'd eaten bear at this guy's place. Um was furious. He wrote to upbraid me. He wrote to the newspapers to get them to state in his name that he had never served bear to his travelers. But his fury kept increasing as each traveller asked him as their first question, Do you have any bear? <laughs> I love the fact that Dumas told this story in his book and now this poor innkeeper is just getting tourists coming in being like, Do you got a bear? I want to try the bear. And he's like, I don't, I don't blame bear. them though, I think I would as well. <laughs> yeah, although Dumas goes on to say, if this stupid man had thought to answer yes and then served ass, horse meat, or mule instead of bear, he would have made a fortune. <laughs> See, this is why Which we is love true. and support you. Absolutely. <laughs> Since that time, we've become more civilized. Bear hams have been a dish which one doesn't meet in every salted provision dealer's premises, but which one can find without too much difficulty. Uh, and he gives a recipe that he says comes from Monsieur Urbain Dubois, the cook of their Majesties of Prussia, for the way in which you can serve bare feet. Um, and I, I looked into this guy, and uh, yeah, he was um, in the late 19th century, he was the cook for um, the King of Prussia. And he was also previously to that the cook of. Um, a Russian ambassador. So presumably that's where he learnt this yeah. recipe. I don't know. Um, so here, according to Monsieur Aubain Dubois, the cook of their majesties of Prussia, is the way in which these feet are served in Moscow, St. Petersburg, and throughout all of Russia. The paws are sold skinned. One starts by washing them, salting them, putting them in terrine, 
and covering them with a marinade cooked with vinegar in which they are allowed to seep for two or three days. Then line a casserole with bacon and ham trimmings and chopped vegetables. Lay the bear's feet on the vegetables. Cover them with the marinade, some bouillon and some bards of bacon. Let them cook for seven or eight hours on a very low flame, adding liquid as it reduces. When the paws are cooked, leave them in the liquid until they are nearly cold. They should then be drained and wiped, divided lengthwise in four, sprinkled with cayenne pepper and rolled in melted lard. Roll them with breadcrumbs and grill them gently for half an hour, then arrange them on a platter into which you have poured a piquant sauce. So this is a recipe for breaded so bear legs. You pickle them, and then you slow cook them, and then you turn them into fingers. <laughs> kind of, essentially, yeah. And then bear just... nuggets. Bear nuggets. <laughs> Um, so this sent me on a quest to learn more about this supposed, like, Russian bear culinary tradition. Um, and it turns out that, like, when you do an internet search for bear ham, uh, you get a lot of entries for that, the Billy Billy Bear Bear. Ham, like, the actual, the ham that's shaped (laughs) like a bear's face. Um... And people are very divided about this, apparently. Some people are like, oh, beloved childhood memory. And then some people are like, if you've ever beaten Billy Bear Ham, you don't need to worry about what's in the vaccine. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I loved Billy Bear. (laughs) But I was, in fact, looking for information (laughs) about real bear. Um, And it turns out that it is, in fact, a meat that was widely eaten pretty much around the world, actually. Like, wherever there are bears, because people have been hunting things for a long time. Killing it anyway. Um, uh, Yeah, uh, and bears um, were famously throughout history hunted for their fur and for, like, their fat as well, which was was used in... um, like creams and things, and creams like like cosmetics, um, and, and as well as it's sort of like it was used for like skin conditions. Ah, okay, we- weird medicines. Yeah, um, but then also apparently it was quite good for for like uh, apparently it was used by some indigenous groups for like protecting your skin during the winter. Yes, it, it would probably be quite a powerful moisturizer. Um, yeah. So bears being a thing that that was eaten is pretty well known, and that like there's plenty mm-hmm. of black bears in Russia. Uh, Dumas says um, that that is the kind of bear that lives in the Kamchatka region. Um, oh, in fact, he also says. The forest and countryside of Kamchatka are full of bears who only attack when they are attacked themselves. And a peculiar thing is that they never harm women, whom they nevertheless follow to steal the fruit which they are gathering. So there you go, bears, feminist. I support the Kamchatka bears. (laughs) (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Um, So this led me through a few recipes from like modern hunters um on like how to prepare bear the main thing being you have to be very careful if you're preparing bear meat it's it's easy to get yeah, ill from I, it i've heard that if, if you're you not bear liver you can die of vitamin a poisoning oh gosh okay yeah that that's a bad one um bears are also like the leading cause of trichinosis in north america <laughs> Um, which is a, a parasitic disease that used to be quite common in pigs. Yeah, not, not um, that one. Until, uh, yeah, no, not not great, not great. Um, which, yeah, so um, due to like improved health care of farm animals, that's much less common in pigs. Um, but still pretty common in bears and also due to bears like not really being a thing that is farmed except in some cases which like isn't great uh but um but like they're generally a wild meat if people are eating them and so like you don't know what they have so if if you are 
uh, gonna hunt a bear and eat it, which you shouldn't do unless you know whether or not they are like endangered in your area and like yeah, all of that. Um, it needs to be cooked at the right temperature to kill any potential um, trichinosis parasites. Anyway, um, I came across a recipe for pelmeni. After all that, that's which quite a nice name. A kind of it is, uh, and they are dumplings. They are a kind of like Ooh. sourdough dumpling originating in the Ural regions of Siberia. Uh, but apparently they're now really popular just all across Russia and well, Eastern you, Europe. You mean you can't go wrong um, with a dumpling? Oh, you cannot. You absolutely cannot. They look a little bit like really hench tortellini. Tortelloni? And uh-huh uh, that 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 one that one sorry that was just a plague <laughs> with italian um and they are traditionally made with sourdough like dough and wild meats such as moose or bear uh, in siberia uh and yeah, they look absolutely delicious. Um, and apparently they are. Apparently these days, like the kind of commercial versions that you can find in in a lot of Eastern Europe aren't really are made with just kind of like the regular dough and like obviously not with wild meats or anything. But the traditional way of making it is with a fermented dough, like a sourdough or like soured with whey. Um, so like you would just leave the dough for a little bit. And then... So are, th are they similar to bao then, with the, the kind of meat in the middle and then bread around it? Uh, I mean, bao are, are much fluffier, um, I think. Like the, I mean, yes, um, the yeah, the meat is inside, but it's more of a more like pierogi, I guess. Um, it's like kind of a crescent shape that's like. Like like a miniature pasty that's then pulled round into a circle. Okay, okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they um they are also they also have like onions and things inside. Um, and apparently they are delicious. And I have to say, I mean, I kind of want to try making these. Probably not with bear. Because I feel like that's kind of difficult to get. But I've been on our YouTube at some point, uh, we should just do like a dumpling roundup. Oh yes, I, dumplings are a whole a whole episode. Uh, every culture has its dumpling, and all of them, without exception, are delicious. I haven't even tried all of them, and I can confidently say that because a dumpling Tell is a dumpling. What? Fifty patron goal. I'm I'm making it official. Fifty patrons. We make a bunch of dumplings from around the world. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I'm looking forward to that already. Um, so yeah, that's that's pretty much it for my local larder. The Pelmini, the Russian bear dumpling. Um and I'm gonna put a link to this recipe that I found if anyone is interested in trying to make those at home. Apparently, obviously, you can use a different meat. <laughs> but an interesting thing was apparently, um, it definitely matters as well what the bear has been eating. Because if if the bear has been mainly feeding on fish then apparently it tastes <laughs> awful you want like a, a vegan so, bear I, there you go i guess <laughs> i i doubt that like anyone listening to this is ever gonna hunt a bear but just in case you do <laughs> there's there's some advice sure um <laughs> however i am definitely gonna try these dumplings So yeah, there you go. A very winding, and so we we took the long road to dumplings, but we got there. Well, you you had to bring in friend of the show, Alexandre Gumar. 
I did. Absolutely. I I had I needed to give you his take on it because it um, is glorious. So if if you want to get us uh, one step closer to uh, our big dumpling adventure, um, you can visit patreon.com slash bread and thread where you can get access to a Discord server where we talk about food and crafts and uh, monthly recipes written by me. Our most recent one was a blueberry cheesecake sundae, which... I I made yeah. for some friends who came around a couple of years ago and it went down very well. I'm not surprised. Um, oh gosh, sorry, I got distracted by Sundays. We also have a Twitter, a Bread and Thread, where you can find teasers of upcoming episodes and links to things that we talk about in the podcast. Um, and we have a YouTube channel that is also called Bread and Thread which has um, our episodes, but on YouTube, and also various things like yeah, I, soap Yeah, I put up making. a video of me making tallow soap. Um, um, there, will, there will also be um, other videos soon. Yeah, I, I did actually make a video of um, looking inside the um, Encyclopedia of Needlework, which I put on my own YouTube, but I, I don't know if it's worth putting it I, on I the bread and thread as well. Okay. Um, um, yeah. What else do we have? We have a Tumblr, which is also bread and thread, um, which has oh, yeah. pretty much the same stuff as the Twitter. But you know, Tumblr. Yeah, we're just um, covering all our bases. And yeah, if you want to suggest an episode or tell us about if you've eaten bear meat or just tell us about your favorite dumpling, um, so we can make a list. Um, Please. Please tell e us about either the messages on one of those or email bread and thread podcast at gmail.com. And we will be back in a couple of weeks. <laughs>